You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. Lecture 4, given on October 27, 1909, entitled Supersensible Currents, Group Soul, and the I in Human Beings and Animals. Yesterday we discussed the currents of forces that shape the human organism and make its form comprehensible. We saw how if we get to know the formative forces, the heart and the eye, E-Y-E, must, in an amazing way, look just as they do. We delineated the supersensible processes that occur in our organism so that its material structure manifests. And we saw how it is built by the currents that flow from left to right and right to left, from above downward and from below upward, and from front to back and vice versa. Someone might say, quote, We will catch you in your own trap. You fail to consider a very important phenomenon when you speak of these currents, from right and left, above and below, and front and back, you do not explain the fact that human beings have organs in precise left-right symmetry, as well as other organs such as the heart, stomach, liver, and so on, that are asymmetrical. This person would go on to say, if the human organism were completely asymmetrical, perhaps we could comprehend how it is formed by your currents. If it differed just as much in its left-right aspect as it does from below upward and from front to back, Unquote. Although one could object in this way, it would be short-sighted, because, as we already pointed out, the currents flowing left to right and right to left are those that form the physical and etheric bodies. The human being is symmetrical in the direction that the currents of the physical and etheric bodies flow. It is just in this direction where physical and etheric bodies flow that the human being is symmetrically built. Now recall what spiritual scientific research says about the existence of these currents and the anthroposophic explanations of them, and then ask if it is possible to clarify the reason this has to be as it is. Spiritual scientific research shows that the human physical body is very ancient, having originated on old Saturn. The etheric body was added during the ancient sun, the astral body during the moon, and the I, capital, first appeared on earth. Footnote. Steiner's planetary references do not refer to the physical planets as we understand them today, but to epochs of cosmic evolution. For a more thorough introduction to these planetary phases, see Title and Outline of Esoteric Science, see also titled The Spiritual Hierarchies and the Physical World, Reality and Illusion. End of footnote. We may now ask what the physical body looked like when it was formed on old Saturn. It was, of course, asymmetrical, since it had to work in a direction that corresponds to the left-to-right orientation 
of today's physical body. And what about the etheric body in its origin on the sun? It too is asymmetrical, since it had to be laid out in the direction that corresponds to the present right-to-left orientation in the physical body. Evolution continued, however, and didn't stop with the effect of ancient sun. The effect of moon activity now began. The physical body continued to evolve and its form was shaped further. If the moon's effect had not been added, human beings would have remained physically asymmetrical. But the physical body's development continued on the moon, and all the rest evolved further on earth. Something else had to enter the picture that changed the earlier formation and transformed it into an entirely different one. The direction had to be reversed in order to avoid one-sidedness, and this had to be done from the opposite side. In other words, the direction from left to right that had been imprinted on the organization of the physical body during Saturn now had to be balanced by a development from right to left. How did this happen? In previous lectures I spoke about the sun's separation from the moon during the ancient moon evolution, and I said that the sun's forces no longer worked from the same side, from within the moon's body, but from outside. This is the same thing that happened to the etheric body as the development progressed. <clears throat> what developed as the physical body until the time of ancient moon was then taken up from the side under the external influence of the sun. Now, someone might say, quote, yes, but we can't understand why this second side, formed so much later, is not much smaller than the other side. Why are they symmetrical? Unquote. Recall something else I told you. Certain more highly evolved beings had to leave both the moon and the earth in order to develop a greater impact. These beings had to find a higher functioning position in order to have a stronger influence from right to left on the human structure than those on Saturn. Their task was not so easy as that of the Saturn beings when they formed the one-sided physical body. Those beings had to overcome what existed from previous evolution. The entire formative process was jammed. These beings had to acquire greater powers by shifting their place of action outside Earth to the Sun. That strengthened their powers, and the other side was constructed just like the first. The physical body became a symmetrical structure. If you enter into this question patiently enough, you will be able to confirm every detail of what was said in the Theosophical lectures. The formative forces can be followed even into the most isolated details of the human organs. It would take us too far in these sketchy lectures, of course, to try to explain, for example, the earlobe, but it could be done. If you recall what was said yesterday, that currents flow from front to back, that they emanate from the sentient body acting on the human organism, and that the currents of the sentient excuse me, of the sentient soul flow from back to front, you will realize that we have two currents that run counter to each other. How should we imagine the currents of the sentient body from front to back and of the sentient soul from back to front forming the human organism? 
a sketch will help us visualize it. And there's a sketch of a head here with forces being shown. As was said, the physical and etheric bodies and the main portion of the astral body were already present. Now the currents issuing from the sentient body enter the picture to bore their way into the organism from front to back. Their action is such that they build various organs into what was already in the human organism. Now imagine the sentient soul again working into the organism from back to front. The work is an inner one because it is precisely the sentient soul doing it. The currents congest at the front in such a way that as they bore into the organism, they form a layer over the structure they are building. <clears throat> the currents of the sentient soul flow forward and penetrate there at the boundary of the physical body. While the currents of the sentient body flow from the outside in, since the sentient body is outside, those of the sentient soul stream from the inside out. This must create various openings where they come together. Several holes must be bored there. These currents move forward from behind and others move from the front back. The former currents issue from the sentient soul, thus from within, and bore into the physical organism. In viewing this sketch, you see the human face in profile. Coming from the front are currents that bore the sense organs of sight, smell, and taste into the head. And from the rear to the front come the formative forces that build the brain above them. This is how the human head is fashioned, as seen from the side. Thus you can say that if spiritual science tells us the truth, the human head actually cannot look other than it does. Where can we find proof? for that which spiritual science asserts. <clears throat> spiritual science demonstrates that if the human head was to arise at all, it would have to appear like this. Let us ask the head if that is how it looks. Yes, it does. The phenomenal world itself presents us with the confirmation, the proof. Or let us consider something else. The action of the sentient body is from the outside in, that of the sentient soul from the inside out, although it is blocked on the way. It does not make it all the way out. It is blocked in the physical brain, so that it can't get out. It can, excuse me, it can get out only where the openings bored from the front encounter it. The activity of the sentient soul comes out at those places. It strides out. This results in a part of our inner life pouring itself out precisely as sentient soul. The sentient soul can do that. The comprehension or intellectual soul cannot do this. It also lies suspended in us and must also bide its time with respect to its effects. It is completely obstructed. It cannot move outward at all because no currents come to meet it from outside. This is why our thinking is an inner process. It has no way of getting out. Human beings must contemplate within themselves. Other things cannot think for us, nor do they reveal the thoughts to us from outside. We have to bring the thoughts to meet the things. <clears throat> this is the great mystery of the relationship of human thought to the outer world. 
the sense organs do not convey, convey thoughts to us. If a sense organ has an irregularity, the impression it receives is easily distorted. While, however, in normal life the senses do not distort, the intellect can, because it cannot form a relationship with external things. It is the first member of the human being that is able to err, because its activity is dammed up within the brain and cannot get out. And what is the result? It is impossible for human beings to think about the outer world and to have the right thoughts about it unless they have within themselves the capacity to let right thoughts arise. <clears throat> you can see from this that the external world could never give human beings accurate thoughts if the thoughts were not to arise from within. The external world can provide correct sense perceptions, but perceptions cannot think. Thought is subject to error, however, and we human beings must have the power for accuracy of thought in us. This demonstrates, to anyone who cares to contemplate it, that if accurate thoughts arise in us about something external that we have not had any contact with in the present incarnation, it points to a previous life. Think for a moment. Human beings are supposed to think accurate thoughts about the wisdom of the world, but cannot go outside themselves with their thoughts. What permeates the things of the outer world as wisdom must arise within the human beings themselves. There is a boundary between the two, and they can never come together. <clears throat> this can only mean that they must have been together at an earlier time, when the human be when the human I did not yet let me read that again. This can only mean that they must have come together at an earlier time when the human I did not yet hold back the currents flowing from above downward. Now that's capital I. The I was still allowing them to pass through. We must conclude, therefore, that human beings must have been organized differently, that today's brain thinking was once, like the sense perceptions of the I, E-Y-E, connected with the external world in such a way that human beings saw their thoughts. What does it mean to say that people saw thoughts, which we are now limited to merely thinking? It means that they were clairvoyant. Because it is the I, capital, that separated them from the ancient clairvoyance, however, the I was thus not yet present. We must therefore call it a clairvoyance that was still dim and yet and, and not yet illuminated by the eye. Dim is the right term for that ancient clairvoyance. People must have passed through earlier stages in which they possessed a dim clairvoyance. <clears throat> Again, the present-day organism shows us that the human being of earlier times was organized differently. If what has been stated is true, it has very important implications for practical life, for it implies that sense perception can tell us the truth about all the relationships of the material world, disregarding, of course, the sense illusions. Sense perceptions place us in direct relationship to the outer world. We touch it directly. It also implies that we can know what is within us only through the power of our intellect. When, for example, the I flows inward, it is actually there, within us. 
Therefore, when we direct our thinking to the I, it is very natural that since the I is in a, inside us, such thinking about it can determine something about it. Dr. Unger's lectures made this clear. <clears throat> now you will be able to localize the process. It is the meeting between the intellectual soul and the I that gives rise to pure thinking, thinking directed inward. And it will be clear to you that this thinking, which comprehends itself, cannot be subject to error, like that thinking that rambles all over attempting to draw conclusions out of external things. In pondering the outside world, such thinking gets only as far as the concepts and truth it already finds within itself about the outer things. <clears throat> we have to hold the concepts up to things as a reflection. The things themselves can reveal nothing more than their sense-perceptible aspects. We human beings have to allow the concepts or thoughts inherent in the things to arise in us from a real capacity for truth. What can we judge in the outer world? Indeed, people can assess only what they encounter through the senses in the external world. The senses cannot decide about things that remain hidden to the senses themselves. What is it then about the human being that appears solely in its own truth? Of human beings and of other natural creatures, the only thing that appears in its reality for the physical plane is that which the senses can actually sense. As soon as something is removed from the senses, no judgment can be made about that thing from the physical plane. At that moment, reasoning, if not accompanied and directed by an inner sense for truth or inner accuracy, must necessarily fall prey to all kinds of errors. Let me illustrate this with an example that contrasts two different approaches. You are familiar with one of them from spiritual scientific research the study of the forms human beings have passed through during earlier conditions of existence, the Atlantean and Lemurian periods, and all the way back through the Moon, Sun and Saturn existences. We are shown out of spiritual scientific research what forms the human being has gone through. Today we have studied an example of how what the senses perceive can appear wonderfully comprehensible when, you, when we make this approach to human evolution our own, and we work through it in relation to the outer world. You will become increasingly convinced of this astounding fact that everything in the external world confirms what spiritual research discovers out of the facts of the spiritual world. Now, as a contrast, let us look at the recently formulated theory of evolution offered by ordinary research. We especially notice that an important law that I referred to yesterday has been established. It is the fundamental biogenetic law that states, based on external facts, that the human being in its germinal state briefly goes through a series of forms reminiscent of certain animal shapes. At one stage it resembles a small fish, and so on, recapitulating the various forms of the animal kingdom. You are all probably aware that when the theory of heredity, heredity got out of hand, these facts were interpreted as proof 
that human beings passed through all the forms observed in embryonic development. One is tempted to comment that it was truly a blessing that the God's concern for us delayed this observation until almost simultaneously, after this theory had been publicized in its more extreme interpretation, things almost always overlap, it could be set straight by spiritual science. The stages passed through before human beings arrived on the physical plane and became perceptible to physical senses were concealed by the gods and could not be observed. If such a discovery had occurred earlier, ideas that are even more absurd might have resulted. The facts themselves are, of course, correct, since they are perceived by the senses, but when conclusions are to, ma- are to be made about it, about it, the forces of the intellectual soul become involved, and that soul has no access to anything the senses have not experienced. If it lacks the inner endowment for discerning truth, it necessarily errs. Here we have a striking example of how the power of reasoning that comes from the intellectual soul can sail into error. What does it show that at a certain point in embryonic development human beings resemble fish? It shows that we cannot utilize the fish nature in ourselves and must get rid of it before entering our human phase of existence. The next shape in embryonic development must also be rejected as unsuitable, as must all animal forms, because they do not belong to us. We could not have become human beings if we had ever appeared on earth in such an animal form. We had to separate all such forms from ourselves to enable us to become human beings. If you pursue these thoughts correctly, you will arrive at correct conclusions. What is demonstrated by the fact that at a particular point in our embryonic development we resemble fish? It simply shows that in our line of descent we never looked like fish and rejected the fish shape as unusable since we were not to resemble it. We may also inquire about the significance of all the other forms of embryonic development that modern science shows us. They show us all that we never were and that had to be expelled in past periods of evolution. Science shows all those pictures that we never resembled. In fact, through embryology we can discover what we never resembled in prehistoric times. We learn which shapes we pushed out rather than went through. If from the facts we conclude that we descended from such animal forms, that we passed through them to reach our present evolutionary stage, we place ourselves in the same position as someone who says, Here is a son, S-O-N, and here the father. As I compare them, I cannot believe that the son descended from the father. Instead, I'll believe that the son descended from himself, or that he was his father's ancestor." Just the opposite sequence of evolution was accepted as the result of a mistake, because the intellect proved unequal to really thinking through the facts of reality. These images of the past are, of course, extremely important, because they make us aware of how we never looked. Another example brings this fact home to us even better. We can study it in the realms offered by the outer sense world, 
realms that are not hidden. All these forms are there in the outer world. They lie open to observation by our ordinary disciplined scrutiny. <clears throat> human beings did not draw false conclusions about human descent as long as they depended only on observation and applied their minds to what was spread before them in the world of the senses rather than to what was not observable. Of course, they didn't judge human evolution out of the intellect, but relied on a natural, exact sense for truth. <clears throat> they looked at apes and felt the same uncanny feeling that any healthy-minded person does when looking at apes, one that can be compared only to a certain sense of shame. That sense was closer to the truth than what was said later about by the erring intellect. In this sense of shame lies the feeling judgment that apes are beings that fell from the human stream, beings that remain behind. They originated in the human evolutionary line and had to be separated out from it. Contained in this was a feeling that human beings could reach today's heights only by first separating from themselves what has now become the ape form. If we had retained it, we could never have developed into human beings. This lies in the natural healthy feeling. But then the matter was investigated through the intellect, and this gave birth to the erroneous statement that the human form descended from the ape. That is an error. The more you think about it, the more you will find that what was just discussed is deeply justified. That human beings are descended from apes is an error that you can confirm through a very ordinary consideration. Let us assume that you are observing the members of human nature, apparent purely through the senses, and that you are studying either yourself or the observable aspect of human nature in other human beings. There are two currents, that of the sentient body flowing from front to back and that of the sentient soul flowing from back to front. And since they converge, we must distinguish in what appears on the human being between what is moving from front to back as the current of the sentient body and what is moving from back to front as the current of the sentient soul. Bearing this in mind, let us look into the countenance of a person. As far as we depend on our senses, the image we perceive is of course correct. We cannot be mistaken, since we are dealing with a sense impression. Now the intellect enters the picture and does so subconsciously. We are confronted immediately with a classic example of erroneous judgment. For how does the mind conceive the human countenance in relation to the forces that formed it? It thinks of it as having been shaped from outside, whereas the face is really the product of the sentient soul working outward from within. We judge incorrectly when we look into a person's countenance and say that it is actually material body. We must say instead that what the senses perceive here is the outer image of the sentient soul, the soul itself, and that soul works outward from within. You have reached the correct conclusion when you view the human face as soul, excluding the possibility that it would could be corporeal body. Let me read that sentence again. You have reached the correct conclusion when you view the human face as soul, 
excluding the possibility that it could be corporeal body. You are concerned here with a great illusion. You look at a human face that is the picture of a soul. And while looking at this picture of the soul, of course it is only an image, you think of it as corporeal. That view is totally mistaken and demonstrates how wrongly we interpret things as soon as we call on our power of judgment. We form correct views of external images only if we understand them correctly, if we speak of the human countenance as an, quote, image of the soul, unquote, and recognize the mistake in trying to explain it only on the basis of the physical and etheric forces. This human countenance must be explained out of the forces of the soul itself. The visible is explained in terms of the invisible in this case. As you delve into spiritual science, you become increasingly aware of what a lofty training of thinking it is, and that the chaotic thinking we encounter everywhere today, especially in scientific circles, must be overcome. Perhaps you occasionally feel that what you hear makes strenuous demands on your thinking. Spiritual science, however, is also a noble training of logical thinking, since it forces us to interpret properly what we encounter in the world. And we must correctly interpret certain manifestations that lead from an anthroposophy that is concerned with the individual to an anthroposophy concerned with all of humankind. Now let us return to what we have termed the sense of speech and the sense of concept or visualization. Did the sense of speech or tone precede the sense of visualization in earthly human evolution or vice versa? We will have accomplished quite a lot if we succeed in sufficiently penetrating human development on this low plane so as to answer the question whether or not we learn to understand words first or to perceive and understand received mental images first. This question has little to do with spiritual science because we can all find the answer by watching the way children learn to speak and perceive thoughts. All of us are aware that children learn to speak first and only then to perceive thoughts. Indeed, speech is necessary for thought perception. Why? Simply because the sense of speech or tone is the prerequisite for the sense of visualization. Children learn to speak because they can hear and listen to what the sense of speech perceives. Their speaking itself, then, is mere imitation. Thus you will find that children imitate speech sounds long before they understand anything that might be called a mental representation. <clears throat> Observe carefully, and you will see that the sense of speech or tone develops first and provides the basis for the development of the sense of concept. The speech sense thus enables us to perceive not only sounds but what we call tones of speech as well. This leads us to ask how, in the course of evolution, human beings became able to perceive speech tones and, as a consequence, develop the ability to speak. How was it that human beings were able to develop speech over the course of their evolution? At this point, we have to clarify a certain matter. Learning to speak, not merely hearing, required not only that something come to human beings from outside and be perceived by them, 
but also that something within human beings follow the same route that the currents of the sentient soul take as they press forward from behind. This was essential. Human evolution had to proceed in such a way that the sentient soul became permeated by a current moving in the same direction as the soul's currents, which create through movement toward the front from behind. That was needed for speech. Speaking had to precede the sense of visualization. Speaking had to be acquired before human beings were in a position to sense the idea in words themselves, even in the words they spoke themselves. They first had to learn to emit speech tones and live in the sensations such tones generated before relating them to specific mental images. That had to come later. The initial experience was not of concept or mental image, but a feeling for what permeated the tones when they were emitted. Speech proceeded from this experience. This development had to take place after the blood circulation shifted to an upright position, for animals cannot speak. The I, capital, had to work from above downward. Although the I was present by that time, working downward from above, human beings were still unable to imagine it, since the visualizing sense was not yet developed. What was the result? Human beings could not receive speech through their individual eye, but only through another eye, comparable to the group eye of animals. In this sense, speech is truly a gift of the gods. It was poured down from above into human beings along the path taken by the eye before it could develop speech itself. The human eye, flowing down from above, was not capable of developing speech. It did not yet have the organs capable of providing the impulse for speech development, and thus the collective eye had to do it. Human beings were already complete, however. They were by that time upright human beings. The collective eye had to work from above downward into the physical and etheric organism and so on in order to bring about speech. Another current flowed from below toward the group eye. That group eye flowed down from above and met another current that flowed upward from below. They met and created a kind of vortex. If you draw a straight line through the middle of the larynx, it follows the direction of the current used by those spirits who gave speech. Out of these two congesting currents, the peculiar form of the human larynx, larynx ro arose in physical matter. Thus the human being had to develop speech through the influence of a group soul living in the earth's environment. You may recall that I spoke about how group souls actually work on the earth. I said that the current of the group soul passes through the horizontal spinal cord of the animal. These streams of forces flowing from above downward constantly circulate around the earth as they did around ancient moon. They are currents that do not remain in place but circulate in a perpendicular manner around the earth. The vertically oriented group souls sweep around the earth in circles. What was the result? In order for human beings to develop speech 
through the influence of group souls, they could not remain at a fixed location, but had to migrate, moving from place to place to encounter the group soul. <clears throat> Human beings could not have learned speech if they had stayed where they were when they could not yet speak. What was the necessary direction of their movement? This is easily discovered. We know that human etheric currents flow from right to left, and the physical currents from left to right. Where then are the group souls that endowed human beings with speech? We can answer this through the following consideration. Let us look at the singular form of the earth. When you consider the fact that human beings learned to speak after they were already complete, you will agree that a strong current was needed, since the larynx in its soft shape first had to be transformed into the human larynx. This had to happen under very different conditions on earth than those we find today. What must they have been? Let us look at the earth. Imagine <clears throat> that you are standing on the earth facing east. The west is behind us, the north to the left and the south to the right. Now notice the strange fact that emerges. The currents involved in structuring the physical body flow from left to right. They occur in the outer world as well, and they were present when the earth was formed. Here you have the powerful currents that come from the north and move toward the south. These currents bring physical matter into existence. On the other side are etheric currents, flowing from right to left, without the goal of condensing physical matter. You can still see this in the earth's asymmetry. In the direction of the physical currents you have the northern half with its continents. There the condensed physical matter draws itself together, whereas in the other southern half you have the expanses of ocean. The current working from the north is identical to the one that acts from left to right in human beings, and the current from the south is identical to the one that acts from right to left. Now let us consider the other two currents in human beings, the one moving from front to back and the other from back to front. As we have seen, the current from front to back goes from the sentient body into the sentient soul, into the soul in general, whereas the second goes outward. If you now consider this, and I ask that you consider it very carefully since it is not so easy, you will realize that in order to learn speech, Human beings had to produce a current that flowed from within outward, that made its way into the sentient body. People had to encounter the group soul current and offer their organization to it, so that what could build the larynx could congest there. Human beings had to meet within the earthly realm such a current that could work into the human astral aspect. When human beings were first learning to speak, therefore, they could neither move in a northerly nor a southerly direction, but had to move in a direction at a right angle to both. In other words, they had to move east to west or west to east at the time when they were to learn to speak. Spiritual science tells us that human beings at one time lived in ancient Lemuria, there where the sea now extends between Africa and Asia. Then they moved in order to learn to speak. They could not go south or north, but had to move west to ancient Atlantis. 
while moving west to Atlantis they encountered the group souls who could evoke speech in them. You will find spiritual scientific observation confirmed as you come to understand the organism of human speech. Thus human beings learned speech in ancient Atlantis. Human beings then needed to develop the sense of imagery based on speech. They were not to stop at mere speech, but were to advance to a sense of mental representation. How could this happen? Of course, they could not continue in the same direction. They had to go in the opposite direction with the same current. Why? <clears throat> we saw what happens when visualization arises from the sense of tone or speech. We have seen how the speech tone develops from melody when transformed into harmony and when the fundamental tone is disregarded so that only the system of the overtones remains. Then the development of the visualization sense required the suppression in speech on one side and on the other what had to be developed. Human beings had to reverse their direction after learning to speak. They had to return east from Atlantis to develop the sense of pictorial thinking from the speech they had learned. Here we see the significance of migration, as described by spiritual science, during which the ancient Atlanteans, who were sufficiently mature, began to move from west to east. They were thus able to develop the visualization sense in a fruitful way. Then it would follow that those who moved in the opposite direction to the west would not be able to develop a sense of visualization in a fruitful way. Some people did go in the opposite direction. They were the original inhabitants of America. Why did they not keep with this development? Why was it necessary that that which was learned in the East be brought to them later? It was because they moved in the opposite direction. That was the cosmic destiny of the original inhabitants of America, that they migrated in the opposite direction. This demonstrates the palpable reality of what is reported by spiritual investigation. One can understand the whole organization of the earth, the distribution of the continents, firm lands and oceans and human migrations can all be understood once you comprehend the mystery of the continuous streams affecting human beings, which we have come to understand through anthroposophy. Anthroposophy really guides us into that living realm where human beings and the outer world can be clearly understood. <clears throat> and now we can go further. We could ask, did humanity go on to learn more after the sense of visualization was developed? Humanity was not intended to stop short at pictorial imagination, but to progress toward the ability to form concepts. The next step was to ascend out of the mere visualization sense to the soul life. Again, humankind had to move in the reverse direction. First, humanity had to go east to develop the imaginative life. To develop pure concepts, on the other hand, called for a reverse migration, since the ability to conceptualize could be attained only after returning westward. <clears throat> if we had enough time to bring together all the findings, findings of anthroposophic research, we could gain a detailed understanding of the great migrations that occurred during the four post-Atlantean cultural periods. We would obtain a wonderful tapestry of the activity of spiritual forces in every aspect 
of the formation of earth and humankind. Thus far we have considered the currents that flow downward from above, from right to left, from front to back, and so on. But we are somehow stopped there, unable to continue. Spiritual science demonstrates that there are three senses that are higher than the sense of visualization. <clears throat> the senses of imagination, inspiration, and intuition. In ordinary life, they flow into the soul, but they flow outward in clairvoyance. This is reported by spiritual science. In order for these senses to exist in physical human beings, they must all build organs for themselves and must work in a certain way. Here we must consider something that is found only in human beings, something that animals do not yet possess in the same form. It is the inner soul activity of memory. It is pure scientific invention to say that animals have a faculty for remembering. It is not surprising that animals act in a way that requires the same explanations used to explain human behavior. It is a mistake, however, to call such animal behavior memory. The primary orientation of animals, which had to be changed to the upright in humankind, so that the eye could flow in and memory develop, remains horizontal, and just as in human beings, toward the front. This orientation of animals eliminates obstruction and allows the flow of the currents of the sentient intellectual and consciousness souls through it, although without the eye. Thus it is possible for animals to commit acts that are indeed reasonable, but definitely are not eye-imbued. That is why we cannot speak of animals as having intelligence. This is where a huge area of error arises in modern science. The facts show only that one can be directed by intelligence without possessing it, and that is how it is for animals. <clears throat> the fact that we encounter phenomena in the animal realm resembling human memory is a natural result of the animal form. But to speak of the form of memory is a gross error and creates a complete confusion. In memory, there is something completely different from what may be found in mere reasoned thinking or even in visualization. In memory, we have before us a mental image that remains after the impression or perception itself is no longer present. Memory does not consist of doing something that resembles an earlier action. If that were the case, Professor H. would be correct in saying that when a chick breaks out of an egg and immediately begins to peck, it demonstrates the possession of memory, since it repeats something that its ancestors did. <clears throat> Clearly what memory is has not been grasped at all when such outrageous things are being done in the field of psychology. We could just as easily say that a clock possesses memory because it repeats the same movements every day. Such concepts are misleading in the broadest sense. Memory is correctly described as the retention in us of a mental picture. It is not the repetition of an external act. It is the I that retains the mental pictures. The nature of memory is that the I takes hold of the mental picture and retains it. But for this to occur in a human organism, an organ has to be created. The I must produce the necessary currents. Such currents must issue from the I itself 
and converge with the other currents coming from every direction. The eye must flood into the other currents that exist without the eye, and the eye must conquer them. If, say, a current flows in from outside, the eye must be able to issue a current in the opposite direction. This essential activity in which the eye was unable to engage at the very beginning becomes apparent when you recall that during the age when the human being was supposed to learn to speak, such a counter-current had to arise. Because the eye was not yet in a position to do so, a group eye had to assume the task of driving this current into human souls. When real human soul life began with the participation of the eye, however, the eye itself sent currents out that penetrated the other already existing currents. Does the eye notice when it drives a current into an already existing current? Yes, it notices very exactly. Up to the point of visualization, the eye is not engaged in penetrating currents. To create higher faculties, such as memory, however, the eye must issue a counter-current that penetrates the existent current and must work against it. This becomes obvious as the eye continues to develop and another element joins the three currents of space flowing at right angles to one another. As the eye begins developing memory, it sends its current to bore somewhat in the di opposite direction of space, and this becomes perceptible in the awareness of time. This is why memory is linked with the idea of time. It is an idea that, instead of being spatial, moves in the direction of the past, penetrating the space-related currents. Thus it is with everything the eye develops out of itself. It would lead too far off the subject to develop everything in detail, but we can point to the current that flows as the eye develops memory. This is the current flowing from left to right. Currents also flow in the same direction as that in which the eye develops characteristics such as habits. These left-to-right currents flow counter to the earlier currents that arose without the eye. The eye bores into them. <clears throat> in studying the soul life, we can distinguish between the sentient intellectual and consciousness souls. The intellectual soul can still be deceptive, you will recall that I said it is possible to have intellect without possessing intelligence, since intelligence is based on the I-being. To gain inner access to the I, the intellectual soul must develop from within to the level of the I. Then it ascends to the consciousness soul. Now, this always involves opposite directions. When it becomes conscious, the consciousness soul always assumes thereby a direction counter to that of the intellectual soul, which still works in the unconscious. <clears throat> Is there any evidence that the stream of these two souls flow in opposite directions? This can be observed under certain earthly conditions. Think, for example, of learning to read, which in a certain sense is a very intellectual activity, not necessarily based on possessing an intelligent I. What I am about to say applies primarily to Europe where, as you know, the population waited, as it were, for later cultural conditions to develop. 
Thus, you arrive at something that was present in Greco-Latin culture when the intellectual soul first developed what is called writing. People began to learn to read and write as that soul was formed. This was, however, only the very beginning. This feature was retained. Then came the effect of the consciousness soul. Conscious activity must occur in a direction counter to that of the intellectual soul, because the two currents flow in opposite directions. People first learned to calculate once they had developed the consciousness soul, since arithmetic is a conscious activity. We see these directions reflected in European writing, which is from left to right, owing to the involvement of the intellectual soul, whereas their calculation is done from right to left. When they add, for example, they add by columns, right to left. We see here, as in a picture, the two different currents, those of the intellectual soul and the consciousness soul, one superimposed over the other. This is not how it is everywhere. <clears throat> the nature of Europeans can be read from this example. It shows that they were predestined to wait in the development of the intellectual soul until a certain point in time so that the consciousness soul would not develop prematurely. By way of contrast, what needed to be developed in the consciousness soul in Western culture, other ethnic groups had developed as capacities of the intellectual soul. These people, therefore, had to be given the possibility of accomplishing something with the intellectual soul that those who waited could accomplish only later through the consciousness soul. It was the Semites who had the mission of preparing for the development of the consciousness soul while developing the intellectual soul, thus becoming pioneers of the consciousness soul. Because of this, they write from right to left. These findings offer us a means for understanding not only the human being as such, but also all cultural phenomena. Such facts explain why, at a certain evolutionary moment, writing and calculation were accomplished in a particular way. We could explore, further, right into the forms of the letters of each people, and see whether this or that individual folk formed its letters with strokes from left to right or vice versa. <clears throat> it is a matter that can be understood on the basis of these spiritual facts. You see here the future mission of spiritual science if it is to bring light into people's heads for an understanding of what would otherwise remain unintelligible. It is probably not right to end these considerations at this point, so we will continue tomorrow in a certain way to finish them. Even so, it will be only a brief sketch. I will, therefore, be speaking tomorrow from an anthroposophic perspective about what we might call one of Goethe's daughters. You are aware that I wrote an essay entitled Goethe, Father of a New Aesthetic. In it I described Goethe's parental role in connection with the conception and the understanding of the arts. It is my intention tomorrow to describe Goethe's child, a really new conception of the science of art, of aesthetics. Footnote, this refers to the published version of Rudolf Steiner's lecture of October 28, 1909. The title is The Spiritual Origin of the Arts. It is contained in title Art as Spiritual Activity, Rudolf Steiner's Contribution to the Visual Arts, Michael Howard, Editor, Hudson, New York, Anthroposophic Press, 1997. That is the end of Lecture 4 and the end of the first section of this set of lectures on Anthroposophy. The next set, set 2, is called Psychosophy. <laughs>